This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Paul Dalgano, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so let me introduce Paul. He was born in Aberdeen in Scotland and immigrated to Australia in 2010. He has written for many Australian publications, including The Guardian Australia, Guardian Book Review and The Big Issue. His memoir, You May Find Yourself, was published in 2015, awarded the Varuna Residential Fellowship to work on his second book, which is the book we're talking about today, and it's called Polly. When he's not writing, reading or parenting, Paul loves to cycle vast distances. So are you Melbourne? Yeah, that, that actually cut me to the quick there because I am in Melbourne at the moment. So cycling vast distances at the moment um, is about 4.9 kilometres maximum. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would, I would love to be cycling far further afield. How are you guys going down there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> It, it just feels a bit endless, you know, um, pre-lockdown. In Melbourne, it's been, you know, on and off, but more or less continuous since March in one form or another. So um, it's almost like the world pre-lockdown is, I don't know, some, some mythical pastime by this stage. I really feel for you. It's terrible because it's only one hour of um, outdoor activity a day, isn't it? Yeah, one hour outside and uh, a curfew until 8 p.m., um, but that's just about to be lifted to 9pm, so, you know, right. time, time for celebration. Yeah, well, what a strange time we find ourselves living in. Mm. But the good news is, to this very strange time, is that people are reading. Yes. People have <laughs> taken books to escape, you probably know that. So we're going to talk about Polly because it is really the most unusual contemporary fiction book I've read in a long time. Firstly, Paul, um, the way we run the podcast is we find out a, bit, a little bit about you and how you came to tell your story. So tell me, go right back, go right back to your time in Scotland and how the love of writing developed and how you got to Australia. Um, so my love of writing came about in um, quite a, I guess, quite an unusual way. When I uh, was growing up, I don't think I read any books until I was about 16. Um, I don't come from a family of readers. I come from, you know, staunchly working class background where if books were read, they were, um, yeah, I don't know, just the, the occasional book, but they weren't things that were particularly discussed or um, thought about or or valued in that way. So actually, I, I left school at 14 um, to become a painter and decorator's apprentice for £25 a week in Aberdeen. Um, did that for a few months. And then I started working as a washing machine repair man person. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And while I was doing that one day, I was waiting in a, a work van outside of a house in um, the old part of Aberdeen. It's actually called Old Aberdeen. And I saw 
all these students coming up the the road over the cobblestones with kind of scarfs and you know flowy hair and all the rest of it and I, I just really felt drawn to that image um, and nobody in my family had gone to university nobody um, in my friends group was going to university it wasn't really a it wasn't even a conscious choice not to go it just wasn't a wasn't a thing people were doing around me but something kind of took hold uh, in that image for me. And um, so I decided to do, because I left school at 14, I have no school exam results whatsoever. You know, I only did uh, about a year of uh, high school. And um, so I decided to try doing an English literature night class, um, which I did for a year. So I'd, I'd kind of skid the work van to a halt covered in people's, you know, washing machine water and grease and all the rest of it, and go into this class with a, a man called Mr. Cunningham. And it, being a night class, at, as night classes go, um, at the start there were maybe five students, and by the end of it, it was just me and uh, this man, Mr. Cunningham. Private tutorial. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's almost it's, it's slightly Hollywood in the sense that it was his very last teaching gig after a, a life dedicated to teaching. And for me it was, you know... Um, I, I just hadn't seen anybody who took books that seriously, but also saw fun in them and etc. So um, for me, that was it was hugely inspirational um, to, to the point that um, you know I regularly visited and kept in touch with uh, Donald Cunningham until he he died several years later. And I, I guess from there, this this kind of absolute love of books and what writing could do really took over and it, it's not to say a kind of love or appreciation of language wasn't there already I just I didn't really know what to do with that it felt it wasn't formalized I guess do you know I think that those things are so formative obviously and we all have those but I think sometimes it's acting on it as well like I think there'd be a million of people like you out there who would see something that was inspirational and think maybe I'd like a bit of that Mm. But that's one thing to recognise it. The second thing is to act on it, right? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. Uh, and I mean, I think, uh, to be honest, it was, um, as it turned out, off the back of doing that class, you know, I went back and did more exams to get into university and ended up doing a five-year literature and languages degree. But at, at that first step, that first moment, that wasn't what I thought the path was going to be. So it was fairly low risk. You know, I paid whatever it was, I can't even remember, a very small amount of money to go along and, you know, read Huckleberry Finn and Romeo and Juliet and kind of essentially get a feel for what that might be like. So, yeah, it, it, it turned out to be really transformational for me. But, yeah, I, I had absolutely no idea when I started it that it was going to be that transformational. I just want to go back to the washing machine repair part of your career. I've got to say that seems to be a lost art these days. Anytime you call up about your washing machine not working, they mm. they talk you through, I don't know if you've had that experience, but they talk you through the process of repairing it yourself. And I'm thinking, what happened? What happened to those people? Yeah, look, it's, it's a bit like cars, isn't it? You know, they, they used to have, you know, 100 parts that could be replaced and now it's one electronic bank that if it goes or if your bumper goes or whatever, you're you're actually talking about a massively expensive repair. Okay, so back to your writing career. So what was your first job as a writer? Uh, let me see. My first job as a writer was um, I, at, at the age of about 26, I think, I had finished university. 
didn't really have a whole lot of direction, as I said. I, I, you know, I, I just um, I, I don't have that cultural capital, or I didn't have it back then, where people would say, "Here's here's the next step, mate. Do this one." So I kind of finished university. And Hang on, can I just interrupt you there? What was the relationship with your family at the time, and what was their view about what you were doing? Uh, my family was um, really happy with what I was doing, but in a way, you know, when, when I finished my degree, the, the day I finished it, I got, uh, or the day I was graduating, I got a letter that I'd kind of th- dreamed about getting for the whole five years, which was a scholarship letter to uh, go to Cambridge to do a PhD, wow. but partially funded. And on that same day, I was picking my mum and dad up. They lived in Spain, um, so I was picking them up to celebrate and things and uh, told them this you know on the drive to the airport I was kind of frothing just so excited imagining a life of you know leather elbow patches and academia and a cool office and stuff and when I told them they they just seemed really crestfallen really quickly and said oh well you know there's no way we can support you at all you know so this is probably going to be unlikely for you to do and things and um, I mean, looking back, I mean, may- maybe I could have had a bit more grit at the time, but I, I just kind of, I-, I felt so deflated by that and so, I guess, desperate for somebody to help celebrate that with me that I ended up uh, not doing that. But yeah, when I when I was about 26 or 27, I decided in a, in a kind of vague way that I really wanted to write, that that's something I enjoyed. So I did a, a, a little postgrad course, like a year-long postgrad course in Scotland, uh, to become a journalist, and off the back of that, uh, got a got a fellowship to work at uh, the Big Issue and a newspaper called the Sunday Herald in Glasgow, where you split six months between one and six months between the other, um, and even there, I mean, immediately I was drawn to features more than news, and even though um, I had six months on the news desk at the Sunday Herald. Everyone there quickly realised as well that I'm not really a news hound. I mean, I love journalism. But the stories um, predominantly I ended up getting were page three stories. So the lighter one on a Sunday, you know, are Jaffa cakes really cakes or are they biscuits and what's the difference? That that kind of thing, you know, or X, XYZ town in Scotland has been voted trip advisors, you know, number one tourist destination. Why is that the case? And, you know, I'd go out and do these kind of colour pieces and reportage pieces. So... Yeah, I was really fortunate in that even in that six months of feeling, oh, God, I'm not nearly as good as these news journalists who are driven by hard news and scoops. The features desk um, at the newspaper, the magazine desk, they, um, I guess, noticed what I was doing. And so off the back of that fellowship, I ended up getting a full-time job as a features writer and interviewer. And so that, that was really, yeah, that was really the start of it for me. And then... I guess in one one form or another, I've been writing ever since then. And what led you to come to Australia? My my wife's from Australia. My wife's from Melbourne. um, And even though she had been travelling for about 18 years since she was very young, when we met, we met in Italy. I was teaching English in Italy as a second language. She was teaching English in Italy as a second language. And we met there and uh, fell in love and spent a year in Italy, then lived in Scotland for uh, seven years together. When we'd had our first child and were about to have our second child, I think we both realised we wanted to be around family. Um, not uh, We had no family in Glasgow where I was living. My parents, as I said before, had moved to Spain. So it was really a, a kind of... Uh, my wife's desire 
more than anything. But, you know, um, pairings, it, it seems, between Scottish and Australian people are not uncommon. And among my friendship group in Glasgow, there were a couple of other guys who um, had either married or were dating or, you know, long-term dating Australian partners. And they always said things like, oh, no, I don't want to go or I'll go in the future or whatever. And I, I guess I really didn't want to be the person when my my wife was much older. I, I didn't want to be that person thinking, well, I never did it. And I was like selfish and we did what I wanted. And I know you wanted to be around your family, but guess what? We did my thing. Um, so even um, <laughs> a bit like the what I was saying about the night class, I didn't have a sense of here I am emigrating and, you know, the piano's packed up and goodbye, everyone, I'll never see you again. I, I really just thought I need to give this a go. The worst case scenario, I, I can always say, look, I went there for a year or I went there for two years and it's, it's not actually for me. But um, 10 years later, here, here I am and I no no plans to move anywhere anytime soon. Well, I was going to say the weather's better, but maybe not Maybe not much in Melbourne. Okay, so then you decided to write a, a memoir. I mean, I always find that intriguing to be writing a memoir as a young person, but tell me where that idea came from and why. Um, so I, I'm just, uh, in everything I do, I'm really just feeling my way forwards, I have to say. So, you know, I'd been, by the time I moved to Australia, I was a regular columnist um, in, a, in a Sunday newspaper, which meant every week I, I had to come up with something that was basically quirky or interesting and just based on what was happening. Um, and that, that kind of discipline, when I left that job and moved to Australia, I kind of arrived here without any money or any job, uh, but that discipline was still there. So for the first year I was here, I just kept doing that writing, even though it wasn't being published anywhere other than, you know, my blog, which, you know, obviously people used to write back then. And um, I, I, I guess once a year or so had passed, I looked at that and looked at the, the overall kind of themes that were coming out in that blog. Um, and so the memoir, you know, I, I was really surprised when the publisher picked it up and said, oh, it's memoir. I, I had, for all my reading, I, I wasn't at that point a big memoir reader. So when I heard the word memoir, I was thinking, hang on, that's like, you know, a famous cyclist or footballer or actor who's who's had a life to live. And it's essentially their autobiography of where they were born and where they grew up. And now, I mean, years later, I'm, I'm, I've read so many memoirs and seen just how versatile a form it is and how many different things can be done. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's life writing, essentially. But ev even at that point, I was thinking about it while I was writing it more as, I don't know, like, like journalism or a feature or, you know, using all those same tricks from fiction. So you, you need a story arc, you know, um, you can have first person, but it has to be universal. It's, it, it can't, really can't all be about me. I mean, literally, nobody in the world is going to buy a book because it's based on my life because nobody knows me. And especially at that time, uh, less than no people knew me in Australia. So, you know, it, it was never going to be a, a draw card to read about, wow, you know, here's Paul's book, wow. So yeah. it was it was really about trying to craft something. In that case, you know, a story about what that first year was like in Australia, what it was like being a father to two uh, boys when I've, I've had a complicated relationship with my own father. It's interesting. Um, I, I, you probably know him and, or know of him, Ando, the, um, the writer and painter. Do you know, do you know him? 
Hey, no, I don't. Anyway, he wrote a memoir, you know, at a very young age and was very successful growing up Vietnamese, Australian. Right. And growing up here. And, you know, it was on the bestseller list for months and months. And one of the questions that so many interviewers would ask him is, he, are you going to write another book? And he's like, uh, hang on a second. I have to live more life <laughs> to write yeah, another yeah. book. <laughs> It is a really good point. I thought that was quite interesting. (laughs) This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But you turned your hand to writing adult fiction. Uh, mm. Tell us, um, tell me the story about Polly. So my, my wife and I, uh, you know, this is in, in the real world, not in the book. We opened our marriage a few years ago. And when we did that, we, it kind of became really apparent really quickly that there aren't many fictional narratives out there to either follow or to, to rail against. So with a, um, you know, especially heterosexual uh, monogamous relationships, we're just, you know, we there are so many stories, like nearly every story ultimately is a story about a heterosexual uh, monogamous relationship that goes well, doesn't go well, has intrigue, you know, people fall in a hole, they get out of a hole. And it, it was really obvious, you know, you know, there are some really good non- non-fiction books, including um, in Australia, one by Lee Kaufman called A Dangerous Bride, which is a real journalistic, cultural exploration of non-monogamy. But there really aren't that many stories out there. And the, the kind of stories I, I did see, because I was looking everywhere, you, you get things on YouTube, for example, where um, it's, it's very young, childless, happy, attractive, appealing people talking about, you know, why it's amazing to be polyamorous. But that doesn't really um, cover the, the reality for people who are further on in life, who have children, which is a major issue in the book, and and who are kind of trying to do their best, essentially, to to do something different, but with no no clear idea of how on earth it's, it's meant to work out. So, um, so yeah, that, that kind of real-life experience led to thinking about these issues. And also, in real life, there are, you know, there are lo- lots of organisations now. So Polyfic is a very um, popular one here in Melbourne for people who are uh, polyamorous or non-monogamous to, to meet up and essentially 
trade stories about the difficulties or the you know the joys the difficulties the issues etc which is a real you know lifeline for people because often people just think it's some kind of whack you know people who haven't tried it just think it's some kind of wacky cult um, firstly for those of people that are listening and don't know what polyamory is can you describe that to us so, yeah, polyamory sits within or sits under um, a broad umbrella of, you know, what's known as non-monogamous relationships. And the basic tenet of polyamory is that you are pursuing intimate relationships with more than one partner. Um, now, that, that can be split or changed or factored a million ways. But within that, the kind of primary, primary concern is that it's ethical and it's above board. So unlike, you know, wh whatever it is, between 40 and 70% of uh, relationships where there's an affair, and I've been in that situation before, I've, I've uh, cheated on people and been cheated on. Unlike that, the, the whole idea, the whole principle is that you're open and honest about what you're doing. So... Um, as I said, that that could cover like a million different scenarios, but that's the that's the basic idea: ethical, open, um, and considerate. Um, and and unlike you know, quite often, uh, not, nothing against swinging uh, at all, but quite often people confuse, in my experience, polyamory with swinging, where um, I guess the emphasis is more on uh, sex, basically. So. Uh, there's many, many accounts of people living happily polyamorous lives where sex isn't even part of the equation. It, it doesn't necessarily be, uh, need to be sexually based or focused, but the idea is that it's an intimate partnership, alliance, tryst, whatever you want to call with uh, more than one person. Mm. <laughs> okay. So tell me about Chris Flood. Chris Flood is um, a man who, he's about 39 years old at the start of the book. He works at the State Library of Victoria. He's pretty much not that interested in his job. Um, I think he, you know, he's raising two young children. He's doing the job, you know, he kind of likes that he's tangentially related to the Melbourne art scene and the, the book scene. But uh, largely, he's he's kind of dialing it in. By the time we join him in the novel, um, he's married to Sarah Flood, and he's um, full of insecurity and fear and self-doubt uh, and and a bit of shame about the fact that in the uh, eight years since their first child, Oliver, was born, he and Sarah haven't had sex, which for Sarah isn't necessarily the worst thing that's ever happened to her but for Chris very much in his mind in big capital letters this is the worst thing that's ever happened to him so between uh, Chris and Sarah together they, they discuss this idea of opening up their marriage primarily and in fact exclusively for Sarah um, at, at the time we joined them in the book so that um, from Sarah's point of view she can kind of um, kickstart her libido get back into feeling um sexy and not just chained to chained to all the drudgery that comes along with having children and for chris's case uh, from chris chris's point of view it's a bit of a um there's a positive side where he he genuinely loves sarah and wants that to be the case but his selfish side is definitely thinking that this kickstarting of sarah's libido has to you know just has to be good for him too in that she'll, she'll want to have sex with him again surely 
It's not an easy part. I mean, it's it's well written, it's beautiful, it's funny, um, and it's really tender. But it's not that easy, is it, in real life? I, I, I don't think there's anything easy about it whatsoever. Um, yeah. in, in my case with my wife and my partner and, you know, uh, people my wife has been seeing over this uh, number of years, we've basically just all agreed that we really don't know what we're doing and inevitably we're going to tread on each other's toes and do things that hurt the other one but ultimately we th that's not our intention and we're trying to be sensitive to that and trying to work our way through it so you, you know one of one of the big differences that, that i've tried to cover in the book i guess is it, it it's not uncommon for uh, a couple to fantasize about bringing someone else into their relationship the the issue with that, and you know, on a fantasy level, that's that's completely fine and completely valid. The issue in the real world is you have that fantasy, and then whoever it is that comes into your world is no longer a fantasy. They're a real person with real feelings, real emotions, real sensitivities, a whole life informing who they are. So that's that's a hugely complicating factor that doesn't get taken into account. So if let's say Chris and Sarah in this case might be thinking, yeah, this other person that we bring into our relationship, as long as that person's not real, they're very easy to to deal with. It doesn't complicate matters that much. It's just, it's a, it's a theoretical exercise. The real trick and the complicated thing is to realize you're, you're dealing with um, real people and they deserve all the respect and uh, love and care that, that any of us do. Yeah. Do you know, the thing that um, that kind of, and I thought you dealt with it quite well in the book, but the thing in, in reality for me is that it is the intimacy of relationships, like of a husband or a partner or whatever, is the uniqueness and the intimacy that you have with, that you know so more about that person than anybody else and they know more about you than anybody else. And so you introduce somebody else into it and some people might think that that seal then is broken. Do you think that? Um, I can see why uh, it's a really interesting point and I can see why people would think that. I guess... Um, and we're conditioned to that, aren't we? Well, I, I guess the thing is we assume, and, and probably for good reason, that a, a, as, as you put it, a seal is broken or another way to put it is you're, you're opening Pandora's box. The same kind of thing. So we assume that's the that's the kind of thing once it's broken, it's broken. The the weird thing, um, not, not just in my case, but lots of people I've spoke to in the, the course of writing this book, the weird thing ultimately is um, although the kind of sexual romantic intimacy is where all the focus is and all our, our it's the, the spearhead for our insecurities and sense of our particular relationship with a person being special. Ultimately, um, what tends to happen is you, you find out it's other things that are holding you together. So in a way, once that seal's broken or once Pandora's box is open, you realise in some ways, the worst things happen from a from a certain point of view. You've you've lost that um, exclusive access to each other. But what you can find is that there are actually much more fundamental 
uh, arguably important things holding you together and unique to the two of you that actually have nothing at all to do with the, the high romance or the sex or the, the intimacy with other people. So, yeah, that's, uh, I guess the easiest way to say it is it's a double-edged sword. You're, you're in giving up something, uh, ideally you're going to find out that there was something there that was actually more fundamental to your relationship in the first place. Do you have any statistics around um, the success or not success, if you like, of, of, you know, like how many of these relationships end up in separation or divorce? Um, I, I don't actually have those statistics. I know that, um, you know, what's it, 52% of marriages fail. So I, I can only imagine the statistics are basically the same. So, you know, at least half of relationships fail, if you want to put it that way, or, or come to an end uh, mutually or wh- whatever the whatever the catalyst is. But um, I would think, you know, regardless of relationship type or the people involved, maybe it's like 50-50 that you stay together or you don't stay together. And w- within that, I mean, there are all sorts of questions of whether separating after a year or six months or a day is in and of itself a failure or just that relationship had run its course. Okay, one last question, and then I want to go back to your fiction about relationships. Is it then, you know, you're introducing a third or a fourth person. Um, I often think about this. Would that then, you know, in terms of personalities and, uh, well, not personality, but the dynamic of the relationship changes quite because, you know, it's three different people or four different people and you've got four different personalities. So what if you don't like the person? Yeah, that, that's that's a major um, a major concern for sure. Um, yeah. My my wife has seen some people that, to be honest, I just think really that, what yeah. you know it's part of this fantasy thinking that I think we're all a bit guilty of. When you imagine your partner with someone else, you uh, it's quite easy to imagine them being with someone that looks like you and behaves like you because surely you know you're the ideal person. So it can be an absolute shocker to see the people that your partner actually is attracted to, you know, uh, without you being part of the equation. Um, and and that, that's different. And uh, again, like any relationship that just changes and is different depending on who it is. There are uh, people my wife's seen that I think are really cool and have enjoyed hanging out with them. My, um, I have a, a long-term other partner, uh, uh, Kate, apart from my wife, Jess, and we all get on. I mean, they socialize together without me, um, Kate's like really part of our family. She, she's not in a romantic relationship whatsoever with Chase, but there's no um, almost to my almost to my um, anger or whatever at first. I was like, how can you not both be jealous? Again, it goes back to this fantasy. Surely you're jealous. You must, you know, you must be jealous that someone else wants me to. But they're just the loveliest people, which for me has meant that it's worked and it persists. They're kind to each other, they're supportive of each other. I've never heard either of them say anything remotely nasty about the other one behind their back. So, yeah, it just it depends. And what about the children? Is the communication with the children as open and, as, and honest? I mean, how much of that kind of lifestyle do you share with them? Um, so with, with my kids, when, when my wife and I opened our marriage, they were, um, I think, four and six years old. So very much pre-sexual. So uh, explaining to them that, you know, mummy or daddy were in a new sexual relationship would have been pretty weird and difficult at that time because they're just pre-sexual. But 
because um, uh, Kate, as I mentioned, my partner, has been in our lives since then, they, they've grown up. I mean, it's more than half their lives that Kate has been part of the family. And, and quite often, um, well, not quite often, I think it's been about four times, but I've kind of taken my moment when I'm driving them somewhere or we're at the park and I've said, do you want to talk about, you know, mummy and daddy and the relationship with Kate and stuff? And they say, nah, not really. You know, they're, they're just, they're completely... I think they feel secure and they feel very loved and they feel there are adults around that love them. So there's no, um, as, as far as I've been able to pick up, no volatility there from their point of view. And, you know, like, like most couples, my wife and I are very, you know, considerate in that we'll close all the doors before we start screaming at each other if that's ever needed. But um, so so they're not... Children taking what they want to take in. Like, you know, they've got a great curiosity. But I think that, you know, I mean, I often get asked with kids about, you know, reading above their age Mm. um, and is that a good idea? And it's the same sort of thing. It's like they only take in what they can take in at that time. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they can at that, at that time. Okay, so you've written fiction. I mean, you were lucky enough to go to Maruna. Um, mm. Tell me just about that process that you, because um, really, um, in a way, going from being a journalist to even, you know, your memoir, which is a collection of, of, of writing, but to go from that to writing long form, that's a transition, isn't it? Yeah, it is a transition and... Um, in a way, it was a bit like setting out on a on a voyage. You know, there were so many new skills that I've never needed in my writing that I've had to pick up and really try and learn uh, doing the book. Dialogue among those. So, you know, as a journalist, you're very, very used to reporting dialogue and, you know, presenting dialogue and, uh, during interviews and things in ways that make sense and bring the reader along. But that's quite different to making up what people are saying and trying to make that flow. So, yeah, th- definitely um, dialogue was a big one. Um, and also, um, this might sound weird, but just the, the freedom to make things up. So uh, as a journalist, you're always, uh, or a nonfiction writer, you're, you're always checking in with yourself to say, is this what happened? And, you know, there are ways, obviously, you're, you're creating fiction when you're doing nonfiction in the sense that you are choosing what to present. So you're creating a narrative out of what would otherwise be the, the chaos the chaos of normal life. But yeah, the, the um, kind of giving myself permission, if you like, to make things up and invent things and to think through what people might do rather than try and analyse what people have done was um, it's really eye-opening. And uh, yeah, as I said, I felt I needed to upskill very quickly. Uh, well, I say, I say very quickly, it took years to write the book, but, um, you know, it, as a process, I needed to learn lots of new skills. Absolutely, absolutely. It's totally different. Okay, we better let you go. You might be cramping. We'll tell our listeners <laughs> you've been yeah. in the cupboard to reduce the sound. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, the book is called Polly. Uh, Paul Delgano, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. They were really lovely questions. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. 
All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.